0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ruminations from Part S. And this week's episode is Rumination 36. Where did the idea that congregations need a pastor or a Messianic rabbi come from? Not the Bible. The Protestant Reformation failed in many ways, but one particular way it failed may have led to all its other failures. It is this. The Protestant Reformation failed to declare once and for all that the single-leader model ultimately negates the leadership of Messiah. Just as Korach's rebellion was to replace Moshe, so too the one-man show in pulpits and bimahs usurps the very leadership of Messiah. There is one head of the congregation of Hashem. It is Yeshua alone. It's quite ironic that many self-appointed pastors and Messianic rabbis lead the congregation away from the Torah of Moses. And I would point out at this point that the reason for a lot of these problems is a thing called syncretism. It means the integration of two systems of belief or religious systems. One is man-made, one isn't. In other words, and this is quite prevalent among Messianics, in particular the Hebrew Roots Movement, where they're attempting, or continue to do so, is to meld aspects of Judaism with Christianity. Now, I've pointed this out before, that this is a, a futile attempt. Judaism is not a religion religion. That is man-made. It is a way of life that emerged from the giving of the Torah. And that's it in a nutshell. As Rabbi Hillel said in the Talmud, the rest is commentary. Go and learn. In other words, get educate yourself. After all, they think of themselves as a the kind of Moses, but... There's only one Moshe. And in doubt, you can go to uh, BereansOnline.org and read Rumination 13. Why isn't Moshe the most revered man in scripture? He should be. Worthwhile reading. By speaking against the law of Moshe, they show their personal rebellion against the Almighty. Men that seize the role are just like Korach. They are not leading the people to God by leading them away from Moshe. In my experience, as someone who was in the Pentecostal movement or denomination, if you will, I've seen this one-man show for quite some time. And I'm often perplexed when I see congregants who put their pastor up in such a position That they practically worship him. And I will say that this is flat out idolatry. There is no man that is worthy of such accolades at all. We are all servants of Hashem, no one is the better of the other. And you might say, oh, some people are more equal than others, but not in Hashem's eyes, not when it comes to the Torah. We all live in obedience to the Torah. Why? Because it is the objective standard by which we judge our thoughts, or to start with more accurately, our intentions, our thoughts, our speech, and our deeds must be measured against this standard and no other standard. It does not matter what man comes along and tells you. You need to do what I say. And I will rightly come back and say, oh, then what standard are you living by? Of course, I would not get an answer to this, but of the dogmas that I've heard for so long, oh, the Torah is done away with. Jesus did away with it. But as we will see later on in this episode, that is a, a fallacy, demonstrably false. And like it says, they show their personal rebellion against the Almighty. How can you claim to love God and don't obey him? Men that seize the role are just like Korak. They are not leading the people to God, but by leading them away from Moses. And I'm repeating there. By rebelling against Moshe, they are rebelling against Messiah. By annulling or diminishing the Torah, they make for themselves a new law. And it is not God's law, no matter what they say. They gathered together against Moshe and Aharon and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy. Every one of them, and Hashem, is among them. Why then do you not, why do you exalt yourselves above the kahal, the assembly of Hashem? I mean, what I find in this verse is that Korach, and quite possibly on a literal sense, that he is, playing the congregation against Moshe and Aharon. He's trying to claim something that flat out does not belong to him. But as we will find out in a little bit in this episode, he started out with good intentions, but as the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And this verse is uh, number 16.3 that I just read. And then Shaul says, to the Colossians, and he, Messiah, is the head of the body, or kahal, assembly, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, and that's Colossians 1.18. Now, something like this, it provides a segue into the next part I'm going to be reading from, or the next source, Um and it's uh, Torah Wellsprings by Rabbi Bitterman. It's a weekly news like a weekly drosh um that I receive every week. And I and I do go through it, and Rabbi Bitterman always has some really great insights. And of course, is this week is no exception to that rule because he brings the Rashi at the very beginning of the Parsha. And this section of the episode is entitled The Severity of Makloket." And admittedly, we see a lot of this in the church and in the messianic movement. Or they say it's okay to disagree if you don't agree with us, but yet what I have seen and experienced is quite wholly another, and I'll give you an example. I think one of the last times that my wife and I attended the shul Um and this was a Christian slash Hebrew roots, although we didn't really have didn't know of any other place to go because you know she simply found it to her merit, you know, and it was a learning experience. You know, I came away learning quite a bit, but at the same time a lot of questions about their motives, their intentions. And one of them is regarding the name, the holy name, the inevitable name that is never to be pronounced. You know, They were witnessing that some people, my wife and I included in this, is that we know the halakha regarding the name. We never pronounce it. There is no one who knows it. The only one who was made privy to it was Moshe when the Torah was given, and then he passed this on to Aharon. He did not give it to anyone else. Only the Kohen Gadol was aware of the pronunciation of the name. And the other thing about the name is the Torah can be considered one large permutation of the four-letter name. And there are the 42-letter name of Hashem, and then there's the 72-letter name of Hashem. Both those numbers are significant. One is the 42nd day of the Omer, when we're counting the Omer in between Pesach and Shavuot, And 72 is the gematria for Hesed, loving kindness. So this is just an example, but one of the errors that I saw that they committed is they tried to set two standards. And this is clear, incontrovertible evidence of them, of secretism. They're trying to bring in Christian theology and mix it in with Judaism. It just doesn't work. And admittedly, you know, the look on my face when I watched, when I heard what they said was that there's just no basis for this at all, you know, and I'm, you know, just being honest about it, you know, and I've had several discussions with my peers about this in the group that I, that I'm in, um, on telegram. So this is an experience and I'm sure you have your own experiences as to why, um, you're at where you're at and that's. And that's nothing to be ashamed about, you know. Don't feel guilty because Hashem uses these things so that we would learn and have better discernment. So, getting into the severity of Ma'akloket, Rashi at the beginning of the parsha writes, "This parsha is taught beautifully in the Midrash Tankuma. And Bitterman points out it's rare for Rashi to provide a reference. And what is he telling us? The pre Megadim writes. Omarim, hatsale. People say a cute hint to explain this Rashi. It states in Mishlei fifteen twenty three. Ve deber ve etov ma How good is a word in its time, but it isn't the right time. It isn't nice. For example, during Pesach, it isn't the right time to discuss Coach Sukkot or Hilchot Yom Kippur. Rashi writes, it is always the right time to speak about Parashah Korach. This is because makloket can happen at any time, so it's always appropriate to discuss this topic. The Rambam, in a letter, describes the severity of Maklokit. He writes, don't contaminate your souls with Maklokit, that destroy the body, neshama, and wealth. I saw families perish, cities destroyed, communities dispersed, Qasadim lost, honored people disgraced, all because of Maklokit. The Nevi'im foretold prophecies, and scholars spoke wisdom regarding the severity of Maklokit. But even they haven't fully described just how bad it is. Therefore, hate it, run away from it, and keep away from all those who love Makloket, lest you be punished with them." The Shla and Ha Otiyot writes, Why do I need to elaborate on the ugliness of Makloket? All Seferim are filled with the subject. The sin of Makloket is worse than a Vod-a-Zera. The lowest Yid would certainly be Nos- uh, Moshe Nefesh rather than worship a So, how could a person not be Moshe Nefesh to avoid Makloket? For it is worse than a Vod-a-Zera. Even a drop. Of Maklokit is too much One spark of Maklokit can create a fire that destroys everything And of course this reminds me of what James says in his letter That oh what a great fire the tongue kindles The Shla is a Kiddush Maklokit is worse than a vodazera. The proof is in the following Midrash so the Midrash in Yalkut Shimoni 218 states nearly everyone in Akav's generation worshipped idols, yet they succeeded in their battles. This is because they didn't speak lashon hara. On the other hand, in David HaMelech's generation, even young children knew much Torah, but went to war and lost because there was lashon hara. The shla quotes this Midrash as a source that My and Lashon Hara are worse than Avodah Zerah. The Shavet Musar 3722 points out that the manna fell almost every day in the desert. It even fell on the day B'nai Yisrael made the egel, But it didn't fall on the day Korach made a My because My is worse than Avodah Zerah. This is another source that My is worse than Avodah Zera. The Kazam Sofer of Blessed Memory writes that Aharon HaKohen agreed with the nation and helped them make the Ego because he understood that if he refused, there would be Makloket. Aharon preferred the sin of Avodah Zera over the even greater sin of Makloket. We are supply, surprised that Makloket is worse than Avodah but what? but that is what the Torah tells us. So we must be vigilant to avoid makloket. We add that every makloket contains an element of disbelief in Hashem. If one believed in Hashem, he wouldn't stir up a makloket. Rebbe Bunim of Peshika, a blessed memory, teaches: Emunah means that one believes that he has everything he needs, and if he needs more, Hashem will give him more. So there is no reason to be jealous or to fight to get more. If you suffer from jealousy, work to remove it from your heart with all your strength and attach yourself to the emunah in Hashem's Hashkagah pratis, Beit Yaakov Korach. And Hashkagah pratis is divine providence. So in the next section we'll get into is from uh, Rebbe Nachman's Torah. So now we're going to get into a little more of the the Kabbalah or the esoteric nature of this Parsha. So it's important that you are learned in this discipline of the Torah because it's, it's, it's inner dimension and it's, it's real. It's important to understand the spiritual implications or the spiritual energy that can be brought down, whether it's negative, neg- or negative especially when it comes to the 613 mitzvot and those mitzvot that are applicable to you as a man, a woman, a family, uh, when you're in the shul. Um, But given that we don't have a temple, um, almost uh, two-thirds of the Torah's mitzvot are devoted to temple service, so it's pretty much uh, prayer, family purity, and so forth. So from Rebbe Nachman's Torah, we have number sixteen one, Korach, the son of Yitzhar, the son of Kehat, the son of Levi, took Dayton, Aviram, the sons of Eliav and On, the son of Pelet, descendants of Reuben. And on Korach, Rebbe Nachman says, Because Adam blemished by eating from the tree, he drew blemish and conflict into his seed. Immediately after the sin, Cain and Hevel began arguing between themselves. Their argument was the forerunner of all strife and conflicts to come, especially those against the Zedekim. Thus their conflicts spawned the conflict of Korach. Likute Holokot, page 124a. Gorak was also a heretic, according to Bamidbar Rabba eighteen. He was haughty, which is commitment with idolatry. Sota four b. The antidote for haughtiness is to attach oneself to a Zadik, showing that one accepts that there is someone greater, wiser, and more accomplished than himself. I see this a lot in social media. You have those who think they have understanding they think that because they don't have to honor the oral tradition, which is a part of the Torah, and you can't have one without the other. that is the wisdom of the Jewish people. it's impossible, no matter what you tell yourself this is this was Korak's problem. He openly rebelled against Moshe and Aharon, whose authority came from Hashem because Hashem was the one who appointed both of them. Moshe the shepherd, and then Aharon the high priest. Ba'koach led a rebellion against Moshe's authority instead. Likutei Moharan, Part 1, Lesson 10, Uh, Sections 5 and 9. And then Korach took. He took himself away from the community. Rashi's comment. Korach was an atheist. Yerushalmi Sanhedrin 10.3. At first Korach was a Zadik, but he lacked perfection. Instead of perfecting himself, he allowed his prophecy, which foresaw great people descending from him, who turned his head and fomented his rebellion against Moshe, he tried to differentiate his Levite greatness from Moshe, the true Zadik. This is something else you see today. You have these self-proclaimed prophets who try to differentiate themselves. But the question I would ask then, who is the only Gentile prophet that the Torah mentions? There's only one. And then on perfecting oneself or perfecting himself, referring to Korach, this is something that we need to do ourselves. Instead of pointing the finger at someone else, look in the mirror. It's all too easy to point the finger at the other guy, but before you get overzealous in that area, look in the mirror. It's really important. This is another error of Korak. He didn't look at his motives. You know, why are you doing this? And intention is really important, especially in, in the mystical nature of things. And then another part on Korak took he took himself to one side with the intention of separating himself from the community, Rashi. Aharon was a Kohen. Who is associated with Hesed, kindness, and corresponds to the spiritual reality called the right side. Korak was a Levite who is associated with Geborot, judgments, and corresponds to the spiritual reality called the left side. God's decree, let there be light, Genesis 1 3, corresponds to the right side. And there was light, Ibid, corresponds to the left side. God separated between the light and the darkness, I bid one four. This refers to the difference between Aharon and Korok. Lik- Likuti Mohoran, Part 144. And then this next part is a quote from a friend of mine on Facebook, uh, Ray Luke. I want to give him credit for this. Um, he apparently got into a discussion with... Um, what was a lay person, because I asked about it, and I was curious. Um, so it goes, my friends, let me explain something to you. What the church fathers refer to is that the disciples of Jesus, who were Jews, who were so Jewish that they were considered heretics, they were like other religious Jews in traditional Judaism who they also viewed as heretics. And again, this is all in the context of Korach, that you have pastors and so-called, you know, messianic rabbis who tend to take the place of Moshe. You know, they don't honor Moshe. You know, and this is really the problem with the church fathers and pretty much all of Christianity. Particularly, these Jewish disciples of Jesus were seen with the ancient groups of the Khosadim and Pharisees. There was no Messianic Judaism. And double explanation point on that. I have researched this historically from various scholars. Messianic Judaism is a modern syncretic religious movement that combines Christianity, most importantly, the belief that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. I'm going to pause there for a moment on the word syncretic because there's a synonym to that word, and I previously mentioned it earlier, syncretism. This is something that Messianic Judaism does in their syncretic uh, belief. In other words, you you know, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, with elements of Judaism and Jewish tradition, they're mixing the two. And I've pointed out before that this is impossible. You cannot, mix two, um, you cannot mix a man-made religious system with the way of life of Torah observance. You can't. It's impossible. Yaakov was warned about this from Hashem in Parasite uh, Vayetze in Genesis, where he's told, don't take the king's highway, take the way that I'm telling you to go. And this is exactly what we should be doing, is taking the way that Hashem has laid out before us. It is Derek Hashem. And it goes on, it emerged in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, This could also be better known as the uh, Jesus Movement. It's another name for it, especially in Christian circles. It combines Christian theology, doctrines, and dogmas with elements of Judaism that caters to these views. Uh, See, Ariel 2000, uh, page 223, uh, Cohn-Sherbock. And also page 179, same source. And it goes on, in the late 1960s and 70s, both Jews and Christians in the United States were surprised to see the rise of a vigorous movement of Jewish Christians or Christian Jews. It's kind of an oxymoron to me. I mean... (laughs) You know which are you? How are you how are you identifying yourself? What are you identifying yourself with? I think that's the real crux of of this matter here. For many observers such a combination seemed like an oxymoron because they saw the two faces as completely separate from each other. This is like Korak, he's trying to take something that doesn't belong to him, and he was given a very distinct place of honor in that. The Kohat's had the honor of carrying the Brit Aron, the holy ark that contained the tablets, Aaron's rod that budded, and the uh, and the um, the manna. You know how much better can it get when Hashem bestows that kind of honor, and the ark is ex- exceptionally holy. It's always in the kedosh kedoshim. And it was his uh, clan that had the responsibility of carrying it, the Ark. You know, it seemed like an oxymoron because they saw the 2 faces as completely separate from each other. While Christianity started in the first century of the Common Era as a Jewish group, it quickly separated from Judaism and claimed to replace it. Ever since the relationship between the two traditions has often been strained. But in the 20th century, groups of young Jews claimed that they had overcome the historical differences between the two religions and amalgamated Jewish traditions and customs with the Christian faith. It sounds a lot like compromise. I mean, that's... Attempting to overcome the historical difference between the two religious traditions, these Jewish converts to Christianity defined themselves as Messianic Jews, thus pointing to the movement's ideology of returning to the roots of the Christian faith. Ariel 2006, page 191. Again, this goes to identity. What is the basis for your identity? What are you identifying yourself with? The Torah has all kinds of marks of Identification. And primary and first and foremost among them is Shabbat observance. Remember the Shabbat to keep it holy. Exodus 20 verse 8. And then there's another quote on the matter. Again, this goes to the point of Korach trying to start something that he shouldn't have. Messianic Judaism is a Protestant movement that emerged in the last half of the 20th century among believers who were ethnically Jewish but had adopted an evangelical Christian faith. By the 1960s, a new effort to create a culturally Jewish Protestant Christianity emerged among individuals who began to call themselves Messianic Jews. Melton, 2005, page 373. A scholar might refer to the early beginnings of Jesus and his disciples as a Messianic Judaism. It only to cater to modern ears who don't know any better, but in reality, it doesn't exist. And just to reinforce that, Christianity did not exist in the first century. They didn't know of anything else other than Torah Judaism of the period. That is the first century. Jesus did not represent a new Judaism or anything like that. He did not come to start a new religion, Matthew five seventeen through 19 He came to support the same faith and covenant of Moses, the prophets and their descendants, the Qasadim, Pharisees, and sages of Israel, known as Torah Judaism. Judaism, by definition, is messianic in that they believe in the messianic concept in the messianic era and in the coming of the davidic redeemer who is called the messiah but not messianic in that the belief in jesus as messiah makes a special sect of judaism no that is a phenomenon of evangelical christianity in the first century there are various jews of various backgrounds and sects who were in sync and may have even believed in Jesus' messianic activities. I would also point out, this is not why Yeshua came in the first place. You know, he's come to call those to repentance. You know, he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's really nothing in particular that's messianic about it, just a call to teshuvah, to be about teshuva. The return to the Torah. Shuvah la Torah. This is exactly what Yochanan the Immerser did. It's nothing new. They basically, in a sense, declared the very same message that Moshe declared in his final address, which is Devarim, the fifth book of the Torah, that he's warned them explicitly that do not turn away from Hashem. But. Moshe in his wisdom that was granted to him by Hashem knew that after I'm gone, you guys are going to turn away to all kinds of idolatry to your own way. You know, and I call heaven and earth to bear witness against you that you will do this. You will do this very thing. You know, So these are the facts. You either believe it or bury your head in the sand. But it is the facts. <laughs> and, he, and he points out that he sounds like a broken record. And well, we all do. We all sound like a broken record because we repeat these things year after year for each uh, Parsha. You know, because sooner or later, someone's going to hear, hear this. They have, They'll have ears to hear and it will get into their heart. It'll get into their mind. And they'll realize that everything that the, you, you've been taught has been, has been false all this time. I came to this realization. And so many others like myself as well. You know, Hashem is pulling out a remnant for Him. This is His work. This is what Shaul says in Ephesians. That we are His workmanship created for good works in Messiah. That is, with a messianic consciousness of redemption. to bring about the geulah, which is redemption in our day and just to kind of sound like a broken record myself and I've always said this myself Jesus is not a Christian he's a religious Jew within first century Torah Judaism and then a little more This again is uh, something Ray Luke posted on Facebook. Um, I do recommend you uh, follow him. Uh, The Hasidic philosopher Martin Buber, in his classic I and Thou, wrote Mundus Volt Decepi, the world wants to be deceived. The truth is too complex and frightening. The taste for the truth is an acquired taste that few acquire. Not all deceptions are palatable. Untruths are too easy to come by, too quickly exploded, too cheap and ephemeral to give lasting comfort. Mundus volt decepi. But there is a hierarchy of deceptions. Near the bottom of the ladder is journalism. A steady stream of irresponsible distortions that most people find refreshing, although on the morning after, or at least within a week, It would be stale and flat. Good point about sensationalist journalism. On a higher level, we find fictions that men eagerly believe, regardless of the evidence, because they gratify some wish. Near the top of the ladder, we encounter curious mixtures of untruth and truth that exert a lasting fascination on the intellectual community. What cannot on the face of it be wholly true, although it is plain that there is some truth in it, evokes more discussion and dispute, divergent exegesis and attempts at emendations than what has been stated very carefully without exaggeration or one sidedness. And then another author that he that he quotes W.D. Davies has put it this way, Why letters specifically addressed to Gentiles should have come to be understood as opposing Judaism is not hard to explain. And he continues, The loss of Paul's historical and cultural context led to a different Paul. And he concludes, When his letters came to be read by the Gentiles, who little understood Judaism, the misrepresentation became almost inevitable. Thus Peter's warning in his second letter, chapter three, verse 16. Those who are unlearned, unstable rest or twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And this is what we have seen for basically 2000 years, this misinterpretation, the inevitability of it, the perpetuation of the lies. And taking Shaul out of context. And note that I use his Hebrew name rather than the Greek. Although he himself said, I am a Greek to the Greeks. And this is from uh, W.D. Davies, Paul and the People of Israel, New Testament Studies, uh, 24, number 1, 1977. And that's page 24. And then one last thing, we must ask ourselves why mainstream Christianity has not only been largely uninterested in what the historical Jesus actually taught, but views, believing as Jesus believed, as a major departure from the religion, does this not reveal an understanding that what Jesus actually taught contradicts what the inherited system teaches about him? Not aware, how aware is the Christian public of this discrepancy? I will say my wife and I started to become aware of this back in 2009 in a more profound way. If the large majority of modern denominations have unknowingly embraced post biblical ideologies which have severed Jesus from his own theology or faith, the consequences could be nothing less than earth shattering. We should not be surprised at the recent state of faith. The God of Jesus in Light of Christian Dogma by Keegan Chandler, page 16. And then from Martin Buber, the Jewish philosopher, in a letter to David Cooper said, You ask me if I believe in Jesus? Jesus who? Jesus and the arm of a stone Madonna? No. That is idolatry. The Reformation came and tore down the image and nailed up a creed. Do I believe in Jesus of the Protestant creed? No, that is fetish. I do not believe in Jesus, but I believe with the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those are my sentiments as well. And this is, makes the case that we need to be careful. We got to be looking in ourselves. You know, what perceptions are you holding on to that are just simply not biblical? That there's no support in the Torah for it at all, as well as the words of the sages. And I also, I sound like a broken record when I say this, but if you reject the word of the sages, this is nothing more than a soft form of anti-Semitism, which must be guarded against. And I would also use a modern day real metaphor and what our country is dealing with right now is the insurgency of marxist ideology in our country our schools our government every almost every aspect of our life which is supposed to be based on the constitution a constitutional republic but i gotta be honest i didn't think i would live to see what i'm seeing now but you know what I think we're all privileged to see what we're seeing, but at the same time it raises the alarm that we must take action we can't we just can't sit idly by while the spiritual roots of our country are uprooted by heretics, by people who have no love for Hashem and his holy Torah, and especially his people who choose to live the way he wants us to live but then again, Shaul says to Timothy. Second letter, chapter 3, all those who live godly in Messiah Yeshua will be persecuted. You will be looked upon. You'll be derided. Uh, evil will be spoken of you and then for the Messiah's sake. Or I would also add for the Torah's sake as well. So, so many are caught up in the rebellion of Korak, but we who know and love the Master and attach ourselves to the true Zadiq. Strive to learn and educate ourselves and to connect with someone who knows more than you. I don't know these things except for the fact that I've connected myself with someone who knows more than I do. And I deeply appreciate it all that time. You know, I appreciate the time I'm able to spend with my peers when we uh, study Torah on Shabbat Eve, you know, over Zoom. When we get together, you know, uh, sometimes they go to wee hours of the night, but I'm okay with that because why we have a love. The seed of Torah has been planted in us, as John writes in his first letter. So just some closing thoughts here so that um, to understand that when we look in the mirror in the morning when we get up, you know, what do we see, you know? What is it presenting to us? Is it a person who's striving to be a tzaddik? Because we all can be. We can be pious as well. But it's my prayer and that you merit these two levels of Torah living, a tzaddik, a pious man. That's what our master was. And may he be with you in all that you do. And may Hashem strengthen you, cause your hand to prosper at whatever you put your hand to do. And may you prosper in your studies and in your relationships, your friendships, and all that we do for each other. Amen.